You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to find out that you are part of royal lineage? Have you been anxiously on the edge of your seat waiting for the next review episode of the Narniad? Well, that time has come. We have another Narnia review for you guys because this is Systematic Geekology. Welcome to the show. We are your hosts. I am Joe, a broadcaster, podcaster. Um, And, you know, in theme with everything that we've got going on here, I have been nerding out ever since we started this um, series reviewing Narnia and Lewis's various works. Um, I've been eating up all of the, the extra stuff that I could find. And there's this YouTube channel that I've been watching by a guy named Ryan Reeves. He's a a theology, a theology literature professor, basically Brandon's dream job. And (laughs) he goes through and discusses different famous authors and the theological implications and so on and so forth. And he does a whole series on the Narniad and it has been spot on fantastic. Awesome. Well, I am Chilly Willie from Chapel Hilly, and here in North Carolina, it has been chilly. Uh, it's May when we're recording this, uh, but man, we had to bust out the jackets on Mother's Day weekend, and it was like 50 degrees, and us North Carolinians uh, in the spring, uh, we put all those clothes away, but we had to get them back out of the closet because it was cold around here. Um, I've I've been I'm really excited about this episode as well, Joe, because um, I have a long history with C.S. Lewis and Narnia and his works, and so I'm excited to to talk about uh, our topic for today. I've been geeking out. We are recording this um, after Free Comic Book Day. Free Comic Book Day is the um, first Saturday in May, uh, and it's a chance for you to go by your local comic book store, and they have a host of free comics they hand out. Most of those comics are like teasers or reprints or Marvel and DC and other big publishing houses um, uh, kind of luring you over with some storylines they're going to have over the summer or or the big events that they have coming up, out. And it's just kind of fun to see the last couple of years they haven't been able to do this because of COVID. Uh, so, But my local comic store had the big tent and a bunch of creators from Marvel and DC and from um, like the local area who are doing their own independent comic books and writing. And so it's really cool to see that. I have I have the uh, dream of one day writing a comic book or creating a comic book or graphic novel. There's ideas spinning around my head and some friends and I are collaborating. Don't know how or when that's ever going to happen, but it's fun to talk to other creators who are actually doing it to kind of pick their brain. So that's what I'm geeking out on. It was a great Saturday and uh, a lot of fun stuff out there uh, to geek out on for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Some of the titles that came out on free comic book day this year were uh, really, really good. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how good the the Justice League uh, title was that came out. Yeah, wasn't it? Like, because leading up to this event, you know, a little bit of how the sausage is made. Like, yeah, these comic book companies, Marvel, DC, others, create these events to lure you to come back in and cross over. And they're always killing off and bringing people back. But, but I was, you know, uh, another DC crisis. Do we need another DC crisis? Do we need another multiverse crisis? And do we need to kill off old characters just to bring on new characters? Like, here we go again, uh, you know, deja vu with comic book stuff. But then I read that issue too. And I was like, this is really good. The art's really good. The way they explained it. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm going to check this out. I'm not going to pass this one by. You, you got me. You got me. You did your job. <laughs> yeah. It helps that I'm <clears throat> a very big fan of Joshua Williamson's work. I think yeah. that his uh-huh. run on the flash was one of the seminal runs for the flash so I, I, his, his name on a, on a project goes a long way for me. Um, so, so this week, like I mentioned, we are talking about, uh, Prince Caspian. That's the next one in our series. Um, and, and to catch up on the rest of what we've been doing, you can find, uh, all of the shows on all of the places same place that you found this and to chime in on your thoughts you can check out our facebook page and our facebook group priest to the geeks um and and cut it up with the rest of the community as well as uh checking out our additional lewis related content over at patreon.com slash systematic geekology and you get the added benefit of helping us keep the lights on. Um, to crack into this, you know, it's it's been an, a fun experience getting a chance to sit across from what has turned into a rotating door of other hosts as we've gone through the review of the Narniad. And we've started off each one of these episodes in the same kind of way. So I'll ask you, Will, what was your first um interaction with this story with the narniad etc ah great question so fun i um yeah so i was a kid who um you know i wasn't the best student in elementary school middle school high school i wasn't a huge reader if it wasn't a surfing magazine or a comic book i probably wasn't reading it and so like every summer my mom would try to get me to do something other than like swim and bounce around the house and play with star wars action figures he was she was like we need you to read here's your book list this is what you need to read And, and i i just couldn't sit down with a book i just was not a big reader um but I do remember her bringing me into my church library when I was in elementary school and said, let's go around here. They, there's a library here. Let's look around. And I remember seeing kind of the the 70s um, kind of collected volumes of the Narnia series, one through seven. And um, I remember, you know, seeing on the cover you know, uh, a lion and kids dressed in armor and some guy with a sword swinging at like a chair. And I was like, what is this? The silver chair? What is this? And I remember like her, me checking out that book and, and trying to read it. Of course I didn't get all the way through it. I just thought the cover was cool and got some of it, but then, you know, so I knew about these books, but then in, uh, 1979, there was a CBS kind of two-parter special, uh, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, uh, cartoon. 
And you can still find this on probably YouTube. You could probably buy it on DVD on Amazon or whatever. But but yeah, I remember watching that as a kid uh, going, man, this is super cool. Talking animals and like good versus evil. And there's some swords clashing and a, a lion that can breathe on stone uh, some statues and bringing them back to life. I just thought it was the coolest story. And then um, mom, my mom getting me that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to read. And I read that one. I thought it was cool. Now, the rest of them are kind of touch and go. Uh, but then eventually, you know, matured a little bit, high school, college, I started uh, taking my faith a little bit more seriously, reading Bible on my own, reading other books. I kind of, and I, and I read um, Talking and I was like, man, this is what reading does. This is fun. I read those books and thought it was great. And so my first summer at as a camp counselor in college, um, I brought all the Narnia books and and all the um, Lord of the Ring books together and read them all summer. This is before cell phone. This was before internet. I didn't have anything to do at night except like talk to friends at a camp and and take care of my campers. And what would I do at night under a flashlight or a candle? Man, I was just re reading a ton of books and just fell in love with these stories. So, um, loved them a whole lot. And then eventually discovered mere Christianity from CS Lewis and right. And that was kind of my first kind of gateway into like really thoughtful, smart theology, um, and, and open a broader world into thinking about my faith on a, on a deeper level. So, so yeah, that's my history with CS Lewis and it all kind of goes from there. So that was very foundational for me in terms of my reading history, but also just kind of capturing my imagination and leaning into the allegory of the Christian story and, and Christian theology. Um, and I've loved it ever since. It's kind of funny. I actually didn't realize at first that CS Lewis was like a theologian and like a thoughtful, you know, uh, analyst of the theological life and all of that kind of stuff. I just, I had heard of him from his work with the with Narnia and I didn't actually read all of Narnia until I was in my 20s after I had become a Christian <laughs> and so so it was kind of like this this brand new door of being able to be exposed to this thoughtful person that analyzed these things at a very profound level it was it, it, it's it's funny how for a lot of people these kinds of in ways kid stories are are a gateway into material that is some of the most profound that you can find when it comes mm -hmm. to the weightier matters of theology and and the human existence exactly Exactly. And the themes that he carries in Narnia, he wrote them for children. He's there. There's weighty theological concepts within these children's fantasy stories um, that are like fairy tales, but also capturing mythology. And, you know, he's a literature professor and and he's able to capture those things. Um, uh, the what he was expressing in, in kind of his online radio shows or his uh, <laughs> his essays and what he's lecturing in his college and and university, but then also able to capture that for for children uh, is is great. Yeah, and he has his critics in terms of straight allegory versus I mean, even his own best friend uh, was critical. <laughs> Of his work, but um, in terms of how much he used allegory, but he's like, look, this isn't for you. This isn't for, you know, the older fanboys out there. Fantasy. This is this is for children, and this is how I'm going to write it. 
It was perfect right. for me at that age. And even in, in college, when I was just trying to wrap my head around a lot of things, I was like, this is good. I need to start off here. You know, I'm not going to um, start with the real heavy, heavy stuff. Let me, let me start off with this and, and move on from there. So <clears throat> getting into this, for the uninitiated, read the book, but jokes aside, um, we're we're only going to be able to include so much of and do so much justice to the actual story beats themselves. So so definitely go go and experience these books for yourself. But um, we pick up in this in this story with the the with the children. And we see their reintroduction back into Narnia. They're getting ready to go off to school at the train station. So much happens in conjunction with this train station along (laughs) the whole story of Narnia. And and so we're back in this familiar setting and they're whisked back to Narnia. But it's not how they remember it. It's they're they're brought into this the wreckage of this castle and they slowly realize, well, this is this was uh, Care Paravel. This is where they ruled from, where they called home. And from that point, you start to realize, man, things have changed. The long time has has passed and things are not what they used to be to the point where. Um, everything that they knew is kind of known as old Narnia, the old Narnians Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And you see their progress into seeing what life has become because the, the, the time, the time scale from our reality to Narnian reality is, is vastly different. So ages have passed since the last time that they were in Narnia by Narnian time. And along the way, they find um, some of the old Narnians and they are uh, introduced to our, I would call him the protagonist of this story, Prince Caspian. And you see his, his tie to the Narnian throne, that son of Adam, uh, a human being, the rightful ruler of Narnia. And we see that that continued connection there and the process of civil war taking place mm. where the Telmarines who invaded Narnia and took over and all of that, this civil war taking place between old Narnia and new Narnia. And and all the while, we see this this subtle subplot of Lucy having these snapshot moments. You go through the story, and you're like, "Where, where's Aslan?" Right? I mm. I, I got through most of the most of this story without going into the incredible particulars and all of that, w- without mentioning, you know, the the central figure of the Narniad. And that is because there's this through line of Lucy kind of seeing Aslan out of the corner of her eye, if you will. (laughs) And she's the only one that is seeing him until Edmund is, is, uh, sees him, but we see, we see that Edmund's still a bit of a jerk. And so he's, (laughs) you know, 
kind of backing her up, but in like the worst possible way. You know what I mean? In the most human way that he could think to do it. Um, and and you see that there's this disconnect between the faith that she has in in Aslan that this is actually Aslan, and then why would Aslan? Um, why would why would Aslan desert them and all of that kind of stuff versus so the older kids who find it a lot more difficult to believe that that their sister is actually telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, you know, I kind of compare, I, you know, there's there's a lot of thoughts, you know, similar to like the timeline and order on which you should uh, watch Star Wars, you know, those movies uh, is a similar kind of conversation. And you've had it on on this too. Like, what's the order in which you put these uh, Narnia stories, these books, you know, these seven books, do you do it chronological time of when they happened or do you do it from when they were published? And so, so you do have like the first one published and written was a lion, the witch in the wardrobe and Prince Caspian is the sequel. And it's almost like the empire strikes back, you know, so everything ended in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, very happy, good. They conquered, they did, they grew older. They went back home, their children again, all as well. They lived happily ever after. Uh, but then they come back uh, to Narnia. They're called back um, by this magical horn. They're, they're, they're summoned back and, and they realize things are not as they used to be. So there's the empire literally struck back and, and there's, it's a dark time in the history of, of Narnia. And so what, what happens next? And, and that, you know, so you read this book, Aslan's all over, uh, the lion, the witch of the wardrobe, big part is, it's there, but then you get Prince Caspian, he's not there as much. And so I kind of compare it and think about the gospels to like the book of acts in, in the new Testament where you have Jesus is all over, of course, the gospels, but then you get the book of acts. It's now he's there a little bit, but then you have, it's now, the apostles turn to continue Jesus's ministry and Jesus is there. The Holy spirit is there. He makes his appearance at the corner of their eye. They see Jesus at hand at work among all these things. Um, but, but really it's through them that Jesus is leading them. And so, so this story has that too. It's like, where, where is Aslan? How, where is he at work or not? There's doubt. Can we see him? Can we not? Who, who's really at play here? What's what, what side are we on? What, um, are we on the right side of the history of Narnia or not? And, and is Aslan still guiding us and leading us uh, through this, almost like the Holy Spirit guiding, guiding these children through, through the books. And as you said, the time jump, I love one of the parts I loved about Narnia is that it, it really did whisk you away to a time that was different, that worked on a different time than us. So that whole, it's only been a year since the, the children uh, have been gone from Narnia, uh, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy, they come back and a thousand years, 1300 years have passed. And so that's a long time. And you can imagine, you know, what your house in your neighborhood would look like a thousand years from now when you were, if you return to it. Um, so that, that mystery kind of hooks you of what's going on, what's happening. And it draws you into the story of will they win the day or not, or will Aslan even show up? Right. And subtly in in the background, as this the very human conflict is taking place, you have um, a dwarf named Nickerbrick who is trying to resurrect Jadis, the White Witch, mm. um, to to win the battle of uh, that that's going on and they 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 managed to you know spoilers stop him from from being <laughs> able to do it but you know you 
it's reading through this. It's like it's like they're they're trying to call upon the ultimate evil in this universe to bring about you know what would what would equal the the destruction of Narnia sort of thing. And we know not not quite yet do we do we see the absolute destruction of of Narnia, but it's it, it felt like to me with this story reintroducing Jadis is <laughs> kind of adds gravitas to the whole situation that it's not just – there was enough meat on the bone that they this very easily could have just been a book about the Telmarines and mm-hmm. all of that. But you have this reintroduction of what was presented as the, this ultimate evil that is – that you see – you know, using the same the same kind of motive and the same kind of modus operandi that she used previously, right? Like that mm-hmm. temptation factor that, you know, seducing the humans into listening to her or seducing the old the the old Narnians into listening to her to the point of, you know, promising them victory and kingdom and all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. just all you've got to do is, you know, uh, bring her back to life or, you know, worship her, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like Christ in the desert of, of these yeah. subtle temptations uh, or the wilderness. And, and yeah. And um, yeah, C.S. Lewis is good at that. He similar themes in Prince Caspian. They did align the witch in the wardrobe, same characteristics. There's not a change in character or change in personality. It's the same personality. It's the same forces at work, but it, with a little different, uh, uh, angle to it, looking at it. And you can, you can tell he's, he's practicing and, and working on it. eventually when he gets his screw tape letters, he really has the voice of a, of a demon, uh, down pat for sure. So, uh, maybe, maybe the white witch was just practice, uh, for, for finding the voice for screw tape letters. <laughs> right. Um, and so ultimately in this story, we have, Peter challenging uh, Miraz for mm-hmm. the throne, essentially for the victor, uh, the the victory of the war, and in which uh, Peter wins, and you have this moment right where it's like the reintroduction of old Narnia. These creatures that the Telmarines kind of regard almost like gods, like in that same kind of mystical sort of sort of way that I think is some of the coolest imagery when you see this the 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 old the the old guard reawakened to join the battle and mm-hmm. and you see this this these are the people these are the the creatures of aslan the these are that this is the the way that it should be being set right and you see the victory of the day but in this weighty kind of way that to me reads and this is the beauty of of Lewis's work is I can look at this and certain themes may stand out to me that won't stand out necessarily to somebody else and vice versa. But to me, it's almost emblematic of kind of 
the the proper hierarchy, if you will, being put into place. And and yeah, it's not a one for one comparison. You know, I think the wheels kind of come off of Lewis's work if you try and make it too much like allegory, right. um, because he, he, that's not how it should be read. It's not a one for one comparison. Um, we talked about that last that in in the last episode for Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where when you try to go too literal with the comparison between Aslan and Christ and you get into the imagery of the lion and all of that, the wheels start to fall off a bit. So <laughs> you, you look, you look at it loosely and you realize, well, the, the entire force of, of the deity structure that, that we see represented in these different figures and things like that is now crashing down on the Telmarines. And they feel that fear of this imposing force that I think is is really cool when you look at man's relationship to the deity structure, to you know angels and things like that, and like mm. just there's symbolism there that I think is is really cool to look at. Yeah, there's that kind of tension within the spiritual realm, and then you really have really human politics and civil war and who's going to be the king, who's not, who's fighting for power and and the temptation of power and the corruption of of power with on, on the human level too. So in, in a way that you can do in a children's book, you talk, I mean, we're familiar with the power struggles within our own political systems and institutions. Um, you, you see that kind of played out in this fantasy realm, but you also have this kind of spiritual level there too. And, and I think it's not just the kind of physical nature of of like, uh, you know, my own kind of um, how to run a neighborhood or run a uh, institution or, or run run a government. Um, but but man, there's some deeper things to go under the surface to talk about. Like, what's the posture you have? What's your governing moral compass to to guide you in things? Is it is it Genesis the White Witch or is it Aslan and in, in, in his realm? And it's not a strict dualism like that. But but I think. Is there and that temptation and and who we're going to follow, what's going to guide us is a big part of of this story. And in there, a part you know, in Lion Witch Wardrobe, he awakens stone statues to come and help. And 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 remind me, uh, and um, in this one, doesn't he awaken the trees and that the thing in the forest? Yeah. And so the same kind of similar. This time he's not, you know blowing his breath on statues to awaken them he's 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 in the forest awakening the trees to come and and join the battle so there's that tension of like who's going to help they know they can't win the whole battle with just the army they have that's why peter says i challenge you to a duel to kind of buy buy them some time to go get aslan's help and to get more people to join up to win the final final battle but uh, that's a beautiful imagery too in terms of trees awakening the forest and and kind of that right um, connection with nature and creation from a Narnian point of view. Right. And, and so you, you know, you ultimately see Asland giving the choice to the Talmarines. He opens up, uh, essentially a portal, um, to the original Island that they, that they're from their homeland and they have the choice to stay, stay with, with Asland and in Narnia or they can go back and some stay and some go. And this is where we find out that, that Peter and Susan um, will not be returning to Narnia right, right. and all of that. And, and ultimately we see them, you know, kind of that, that moment, not unlike what we saw in the uh, end of the lion, the witch in the wardrobe where 
companies part way and kind of till the next adventure, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, it's so interesting to me, this whole idea of what order do you read all of these stories in, right? <laughs> right because right. we can talk about this in the sense of it falling in the the, the chronological time frame of the story and kind of this how it sits in the shadow so to speak of lion the witch in the wardrobe and and where it sits in the overarching storyline of the narniad and all of that but t- take a second and realize this was only this was book two Yep. Of the actual publication history, like not in the time t- time frame. If if you're reading these in the order in which Lewis wrote them, this is book number two behind Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And so either method you look at, either way you look at, it still kind of sits in the shadow, so to speak, of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, not unlike when you look at the way a lot of Christians view the Gospels versus the book of Acts, Mm. they're a lot more likely to quote from the Gospel or to know what you're talking about from the Gospels than to know what you're talking about from the book of Acts. But I digress. It's (laughs) kind of that same similar notion here. But to me, I, I, I think that's one of the biggest travesties when you talk about this book, because you talk about this book and you and it's almost like you're talking about part two of Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. And don't get me wrong there. That is if you look at the Narniad, that's the moment, right? Just mm-hmm. like if you look at the Bible, that's the moment. I, I understand it's not lost on me, but. In a post moment world. What we're getting a chance to see is what happens to this world after this point? What does what happens after this big usurping of the throne that takes place from defeating Jadis and and the that that power vacuum, I guess is a good way of putting it, and then the 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 conquerors of the big evil being taken from the land what happens next sort of thing. And we see this continuation of the story that to me serves as this brilliant moment of building out the extra main character world. You know, yeah. you spend so much time in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe building up the key players. It's almost like that was the start of the story, you know, from a from a, <laughs> a publishing standpoint. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you you spend that time building up Aslan and the kids and Jadis and and the mythological structure, if you will, of what Narnia looks like in this big climactic moment and all of that. And so now now what we're getting a chance to see is the wide angle view. What does the greater whole of Narnia look like, especially mm. post the entire hierarchy structure, the entire governing structure being flipped on its head? You right. know? 
Yeah. And I, you know, as I was kind of going back and reviewing kind of the flow of, of Narnia, you know, the Lion, the Witch, Wardrobe have the four kids and then they come back for the sequel in Prince Caspian. And then, and they're told, like you said, uh, Susan and Peter said they can't, they can't come back. And so there's that kind of grieving there. But then my, my personal, one of my favorite books in the series that we'll talk at another time, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, only Lucy and Edmund can come back. Um, so they, they do come back and, and then they have their like snotty, you know, cousin, like Eustace, their cousin, yeah. uh, you know, their snotty cousin. And then the one after that, um, that's the silver chair, right? They, uh, only, only Eustace comes back. <laughs> right. Um, and so that you, you start getting these new characters and then you have Horace and his boy, a whole nother thing. You don't have any kids you know, within that or any of the Pevensies. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, this progression and how the story overflows, but this particular one, Prince Casman holds that weight of like a return to Narnia, the time lapse is used so great. This kind of, um, you know, we think about, we, we get nostalgia with our own history and heroes of whether it's the Bible or the Middle Ages or, or the pantheon of saints that they, we venerate uh, in whatever tradition we're a part of. You know, think of days of old when the good old times, when this and that. And so there is this understanding within Prince Caspian of like the, the old Narnia and what's happening now and, and what's going to be the future of Narnia. And, and then Prince Caspian is a part of all these sort of like, he's a part of the voyage down Treader. He's, he has other roles to play in other books as he grows and becomes an, an old man, an old prince, an old King. Um, he, he sticks around and, and future stories as well. Uh, so, so yeah, this is a great, a great sequel. You know, um, I, I remember when, when the movies came out too and what they deviated from or what they didn't and how they captured the heart of the book or not. That's another episode, but, but yeah, this, this one after reading, you know, time to lie in the witch in the wardrobe and then reading this one next, um, fantastic sequel. Yeah. And I think for me, one of the, one of my favorite parts of this is there's this moment right where there are there's such a sense of desperation for resolution that you you look you look at the way that Jadis mm. tempts people and like yeah this thing that you this thing that you're after this thing is right at your fingertips all you have to do is this all you have to do is mm. bow down to me and all of that kind of stuff and I, I don't know about any of y'all but that when i look at that and i look at my what i call my come to jesus moment my come to jesus moment mm. looked i was desperate I was broken. I was, it was the moment of desperation in my life. And now mind you that that was me knocking at the door of the greatest news that has ever been known to mankind, right? It is the source of salvation and truth and so on and so forth. And, and, and all of that richness, right? So it's the good side of it, but that's the thing about temptation <laughs> Yeah. It promises all of that good stuff. It just happens to have the the stick too, right? When we're mm. talking about God, that's just that's the carrot. You know what I mean? Yes, there's responsibility. Right. Yes, there's weightier matters. There's all of this stuff, and we could get into three hundred one, four hundred one level co theological conversation about all of that. 
But ultimately, everything that we can that we can count on comes from the source the source of truth and goodness and all of that. But but it has to be acknowledged that we see time immemorium this whole play of temptation because humans are desperate creatures. Yeah. We are f- flesh bags that are are some of the most fragile things known to creation. And so the illustration of the human element so resonates with me in this mm. story. You know what I mean? And I think in, in a world of giant mythological lions and all of these creatures <laughs> and things that are seemingly so much bigger than our protagonists, to see it grounded in a human element, especially when you couple that with this whole idea of, okay, so you see this thing, right? Aslan came and saved the day and you saw firsthand how the, how, how grandiose the power is, how, how real the lion is. And now things have happened, time has passed, all of that kind of stuff. And now you're back in this situation where now you can only see the lion is no longer right in front of you. Now you can only see the lion out of the corner of your eye. What will you do? Hmm. Will you believe that the lion is still there? Will you still have that kind of thought process? And and yeah, uh, obviously it's kind of, we are we are talking about one B of this conversation that we had about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where it's it you you get further down the line, and some of Lewis's work is more, I guess, a, cl- a closer comparison than some right. of the other works, and we're pretty solidly in territory where it's a one for one comparison. So yeah, obviously we can all see the the man behind the curtain here, and what we're get, <laughs> what we're we're ultimately getting at. But all of this is is really well-told story beats too. And I think that that's one of the most compelling aspects of the Narniad. You know what I mean? I'm not a huge high fantasy fan. I think you, you lose me at some at certain parts, especially when you right. get towards closer to, to things like Tolkien's works and stuff like that. I'm not as much of a fan of that style of storytelling. To, but and, and I think that to me, that's what makes the Narniad so compelling is because we have more of this grounded human element storytelling, we're really thoughtful storytelling without just throwing in more Arthurian lore and legendary just to have more stuff in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that human element, you know, again, we're talking about the book of Acts, kind of the sequel to the Gospels, or at least a sequel to Luke, um, that 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 the human element gets in there. And so, yeah, where do you see Christ? Where do you see Aslan? How's your faith played out? What where does doubt come into play? What are the temptations? What what are how are you becoming the hands of feet of Christ in the world? And I love it that there are four you know, children, you know, Peter, mm-hmm. um, Susan, Lucy, Edmund, you know, there are four gospels too. I don't know if, um, 
C.S. Lewis made that connection or if that was on purpose or not. We have four gospels that have different kind of personalities and th- there there's a common red thread, of course, with 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 Jesus and who he is, but they have their own theological um, twists and turns as well to speak into their particular community that they're they're ministering to. Um, and that's kind of the, the beauty of scripture that we don't just have one. We don't have one harmonized gospel. We have four four different witnesses um, to to witness to to Jesus. And I, you know, I love it that within these, these children aren't just carving copies of one another. They have a diversity within themselves. They have arguments, they have tension, they have doubts, they have faith, and they're all working together. Kind of like what we do here in systematic ecology to kind of model for you guys, a community of, of, of a bunch of misfits and sinners who are just trying to wrap their head around these things. And we are uh, trying to work together. We have our own theological spins and takes and hot takes and arguments, but we're still, you know, one family in Christ trying to figure this out together for the greater good, the greater victory. And and you see that happening within Prince Caspian and this kind of grounded story of, of these families and old Narnians and do. So um, it's there. And that's kind of the beauty and what br- brings to my mind uh, when I uh, look at this story and reread uh, the story. And, and I, you know, I, I know for some, for some Narnia fans, what I'm about to say is nigh heresy, but it's it's my responsibility on any one of these episodes to to give the hot takes <laughs> that I think in some ways Prince Caspian surpasses mm. Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe Ooh, because okay. with the human element right Edmund is supposed to be the everyman right he is supposed right. to be the archetype for the sinful man that is in need of redemption and restoration and all of that. Yes, and it does, and, and the story serves its purpose. But in this one, you have more time to live in these characters where you're seeing the progression of the mentality of Peter and Susan into adulthood, where you see them criticized for their more adult traits and adult perspectives and mm. those kinds of things. And you see this childlike faith of... Lucy and you know yeah it's it's a struggle at some points but she keeps the faith so to speak yeah. and then you see Edmund and it's more time spent in the repentant sinner the the little jerk that wants to that that wants to do better sort of thing <laughs> I don't know about any of y'all <laughs> <laughs> I can resonate with the little jerk that wants to do better. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, and you know, I, I think that's one of the most, one of the most special components of this is we get to spend time with these characters that have been thrust into this ridiculous situation and, and come face to face with the true forces of nature, if you will, the true forces of good and evil and all of these kinds of things. And what does that do? What does all of that do when you look at the greater sense of what is identity? And I think that that's one of the the core elements when you introduce the Prince Caspian character of this character that is struggling with their sense of identity, their place in the world, all of that kind of stuff, especially when you have this character that is coming face to face with the the mythological kings and queens of the age sort of thing. Mm. You know, you remember, we're talking 1300 years difference 
these four kids are myths and legends to the current day Narnians. And so what does what does Caspian do with all of that when introduced into this larger narrative of good versus evil and and the 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 forces of the uh, of the of nature and and all of these kinds of things and then told hey you're a king too you're the rightful king of of the land sort of thing and like entering into that responsibility and stuff like that i think for me, I see shades of Paul's story in Caspian. While the the linguistics don't necessarily match up with that, the story beats certainly do. Of of the 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 person who's kind of brought just just adjacent to after the fact sort of <laughs> thing, but still considered within this same structure sort of thing, and. and to me, it uh, to to me if you can tell a story that feels lived in, if you can tell a story that feels like it, ex- it that it existed long before me, its characters are are you're telling me char- stories of characters that have lived long before my introduction to the material and all of that kind of stuff. Man, you've got me hooked. That that to me is uh, is how you enter into some of the strongest storytelling. And to me, that's what this does in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, uh, you you've you've got me. Yeah, I, I see that point one hundred percent. And and yeah, like the the line with the wardrobe are kind of the the OG for me, the the original one. I yeah, I, I agree. This loser and it goes deeper and it takes it on another level. And and that what makes this um, this book special. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes Lewis's work special because, you know, we, we always look at the, uh, at the bigger picture, right? What does this make me feel? What does this make me think? What does this make me process or confront me with? And I think when you look at this, yes, in some respects, this story is a coming of age story. It is a good versus evil story. It is straightforward in that yeah. regard. But when you see the development of the characters, that's where it starts to deviate from your very stereotypical coming of age story. Mm-hmm. You know, you you see the complexity of the characters and you realize, yeah, it's it's adjacent to, you know, as as a representation of truth is adjacent to the truth. Then this story that we're seeing is adjacent to our story as we wrestle with truth, as we wrestle with what does it mean to live out my life? as a Christian, not just getting saved, but what does it mean to actually live as a fully functioning citizen of the kingdom of God and, and still wrestling with temptation and still wrestling with identity and all of that kind of stuff. Because it's one thing to enter into this relationship where the, the sovereign one of the situation looks at you and says, rise, king or queen rise and and take your take your role take your take your place all of that kind of stuff but then the the real hook comes with living out that identity and allowing that identity to dictate your actions and your modus operandi and and the way that you process things and all of that kind of stuff and again i don't know about y'all 
But having that paradigm shift of what is your identity and all of that kind of stuff four years after the fact, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface on this thing. You yeah. know what I mean? And you're living your life um, in a way that there, there, there's the element of uncertainty. There's the element of, of things not being as clear from one day to the next. And so even though you've experienced these things, you've had your mountaintop experiences, you, you felt the real presence of God in your life um, as uh, the Pevensies have, you know, with Aslan, but there's still, wait, where is he? Is he gone? Is he abandoning us? What's, what do we do? What, where do we place our faith in? What's going to happen next? What voices do we listen to? Um, are, are a part of, of real life and real faith. And, and I think, uh, the, the story captures that, but, but yeah, you're right. I can relate because same with my life. You know, I, I feel like I have a deep faith and, and I have a moral compass and, and Christ is a part of my life. And I, but yet there are still days when, when I'm uncertain, when I rest with uncertainty or, on, on clarity and and try to figure out which voices I'm listening to um, and which direction I'm heading in. So, so yeah, yep. All right. So you ready to wrap this thing up? Let's wrap it up. All right. So, what recommendations do you have for our lovely listeners? Well, I, you know, I do recommend that 1979 Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe cartoon is simple animation. It's, it's definitely 70s styles cartoon on a cheap budget, but, uh, um, it, it is fun. It captures the story. I loved it as a kid. I remember watching it again in college and going through a rough time in college. And, and just when, when Aslan, um, rises again and that easter story literally brought me to tears at that point in my life um even watching it later on when i was in college and then there's another uh actually c.s lewis movie that's out there 1993 shadowlands where anthony hopkins plays c.s lewis and it's really the story it captures it's not necessarily a, a biography but it does it captures the time in his life when when he meets joy when he meets her and and has somewhat of a romantic relationship with her as a, as a love story but not kind of a deep kind of hollywood um <laughs> it's not a rom-com but it's c.s lewis at the time of his life when he's wrestling with the the problem of pain and enjoy having cancer and what is prayer and what is life and what is this friendship he has with her and it's very moving great uh movie i remember watching it in college and and when i was getting into c.s lewis and thinking how great it was and very moving so i go out rent it find it somewhere shadowlands i haven't seen it in a long time so i'm not sure if it, how much it holds up from a movie from the early 90s but uh it's definitely a movie about c.s lewis and and it's uh um I think captures what he was about, especially with him wrestling with uh, suffering and pain. Yeah, I had never heard of that. And I generally am uh, pretty aware of Lewis related content. So that's something that I'm going to have to definitely check out. Yeah. And maybe, um, maybe, maybe we watch it, come back and talk about it uh, with folks and see how it holds up and um, whether it captures C.S. Lewis now. I mean, that's what is it? That's how many years ago? <laughs> that's, um 30 year old movie <laughs> yeah yeah um for my recommendation it's twofold one if you're looking for something that's extra content to the narniad narniad adjacent 
um, then I would suggest, I mentioned it at the top, this YouTube channel, Ryan Reeves, that the guy goes through all of this stuff and, and really thoughtfully gives an analysis of the literary points and things like that, that I think he just does a phenomenal job at presenting the content. Um, my other recommendation is it's going to sound like a bit of a cop out, but go and read these stories mm-hmm. from a from a sense from a standpoint that try and put yourself in the shoes of the people. If you're a Christian, try to look at it from just something that's from from something outside of just being allegory to the Christian narrative. If you're a non-Christian, dare to let the conversation suck you in. You know, allow allow for for challenging what these things allow to have challenged and poke at the questions that these things present. Because I think whether you're Christian or non-Christian, this is something, these are story beats that really point to and poke at the fabrics of what we believe and why we believe them. Because you're talking about some of the very innate human element pieces here of temptation of faith of belief of morality of identity Mm. so all right let the people know where they can find you yeah i'm on all the socials well not all of them there's a lot of them out there but you know facebook Twitter, Instagram, um, and then, yeah, you can go to our website and see uh, our, our profiles and episodes on on there when you click on the on the hosts. And, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. i uh, love to connect with you. I, that's what I love about um, kind of this group where we're not just a podcast, but we're also kind of a community where we're creating, having conversations off the recorded mic and, and other avenues of private messages and and sharing memes with one another so so come into the conversation we'd love to have you a part of it you can find me like will said if you go to systematicecology.org go over to hosts you'll be able to find all of us there you can also find me live on the air six out of the seven days a week with either buddy walk with jesus or kingdom on the road well that's a wrap for this episode um like i said for for even more wonderful content you can find us at facebook.com slash systematic ecology or look up priests of the geeks or you can find us at patreon.com slash systematic geekology and until next time remember we are all a chosen people a geekdom of priests This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazao Ministries podcast network.